Hello, and thanks for listening to this podcast. My name is Karen Killerly. I am a partner and head of the employment team at Maples and Calder, Ireland, the Maples Group's law firm in Dublin. So before I dive into today's subject, just some housekeeping. If you are listening from your usual podcast app, you'll find any resource documents that we refer to and speaker information and bios in the description. And if you've clicked on the media player link, which was sent to you uh, by email, then you can find this information in the notes section. As always, please note that this podcast contains a general overview of managing redundancies and focusing on preparing for individual and collective redundancies in Ireland. It does not constitute legal advice. And if you do have a specific situation or question, please do seek tailored legal advice. And last but not least, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. So I'm delighted to be joined again today for our new season of podcasts uh, by Kieran Elungink, who is an associate on the employment team here at Maples. And today's episode is the first in a series of four episodes where we're looking at sort of managing disruption and change in the workplace. So today's episode is focused on managing change, preparing for individual and collective redundancies. So this is something that we see quite frequently in practice, and we just thought that it might be helpful to look at the key concepts and anticipate some of the most common questions that arise when employers in Ireland are looking at managing change and in particular managing redundancies. So we're going to look at five or six key areas where questions arise frequently. So the first is, what is a redundancy situation? We'll take a look at that. The second is, what are the key steps in a collective redundancy process and an individual redundancy process? So that's sort of the second issue we look at. Third, we will look at the meaning of consultation. What does consultation mean in practice? And we know that many employers sometimes can get a little bit frustrated by trying to understand what the expectations are in the context of consultation, particularly in collective redundancy. So we'll talk about that. Another point that we want to dive into is employee representatives. How do you elect them? What do they do? What are they for? We will also take a look at selection criteria and selection pools. And then finally, we'll talk very briefly about the timing that is involved in a redundancy process. So as I say, five or six sort of very common themes that come up repeatedly in practice, we thought that we would do a little bit of a deep dive on. So I I might actually just start by talking about first point, which is what is a redundancy? So let me start by highlighting maybe the breadth of the definition of a redundancy from an Irish employment law perspective. So there's some nuance to this. And in practice, it is a really, really broad definition. And it's not confined to the sort of conventional understanding of what a redundancy might be, which is, you know, a business is potentially failing or it's shutting down and and everybody is leaving. So certainly that's one limb of a redundancy from an Irish employment law perspective, but there are several other definitions as well. So it's a definition that's quite old, actually. It's contained in a piece of legislation that dates back to 1967, but it covers five different situations. So the first is where an employer ceases to carry on business for the purposes for which an employee was employed or in the place where the employee was employed. So I think that's kind of the conventional understanding of what a redundancy is. It's almost like a shutdown. However, there are four other definitions of redundancy as well. The second is where there is just a reduction in the requirements of the business to carry on the work for which the employee is employed and employed to do at that location. 
The third is where an employer has decided to carry on the business with fewer or no employees. So that's kind of a situation maybe where innovation has impacted the business and there is a significant headcount reduction. Doesn't necessarily mean that the business isn't doing well. It just means that the business is going to operate differently. The fourth definition of redundancy is where there will be a change in work methods and the employee is not sufficiently qualified or trained to carry out the work in a different manner. So again, I think that's kind of interesting because it doesn't necessarily mean that we are looking at a business that is failing or struggling. It in fact could be a business that is doing very well, but is just deciding to work differently and with fewer employees. And finally, the last, if you like, or the, the fifth type of situation which can give rise to a redundancy under Irish employment law is where the employer has decided that the work which the employee has been doing will be done in the future by a person who is also capable of doing other work, okay? So dismissal or termination will be due to redundancy where it is wholly or mainly attributable to one or more of those five situations that I've just mentioned. And just before I hand over to Kira to talk a little bit more about redundancy processes, I just really want to highlight for listeners two key ingredients that always must be present for a redundancy to be genuine. And the first is that the decision to make the role redundant. So we don't make the employee redundant, we make the role redundant. So that decision must be impersonal. So that means it must be unrelated to the employee as such. The employer needs to focus on the roles. Do I need that role or do I not need that role? As distinct from, do I need that employee or do I not need that employee? So that's the first thing. It has to be impersonal. And the second is that the employer must be able to point to an overall context of change in the organization. So I talked a moment ago about innovation or, you know, reduction in headcount or different ways of doing business or moving location. So that sort of context of change needs to be present. And I think the rationale really for these two features is that the redundancy defense, if you like, is a defense which is available to an employer to justify or explain a termination of employment. But it's not intended or designed to be used to, for example, cherry pick underperforming employees or employees who have engaged in misconduct for termination. The redundancy defense is only available in genuine situations of restructure, change, and typically, but not always, workforce reduction. So if an employer starts to invoke a redundancy defense in circumstances where the true motive for a dismissal is something else, then that redundancy defense, if you like, is just not available. And there is a risk that an employee could successfully claim that they have, in fact, been unfairly dismissed for other reasons. Okay, Kira, maybe turning to you. So we understand what a redundancy is and, and, and why it may be used. So let's look for a moment at the meaning of an individual versus a collective redundancy. And actually, do you want to take us through that, perhaps starting with the collective redundancy process? Yes, absolutely. An employer will need to determine from the outset whether or not the number of redundancies which they propose to affect within a 30-day period is such that it meets the threshold for collective redundancy. If they do, then they'll need to comply with the obligations set out in the Protection of Employment Act 1977. If they do not, there are still obligations to comply with, but there is more flexibility and leniency in that approach. Okay, so do you want to talk us through those collective redundancy thresholds that you just mentioned? Sure. 
The relevant thresholds relate to the number of proposed redundancy dismissals by reference to the wider population of employees in the business in a 30-day period. So the thresholds are five employees where 21 to 49 employees are employed by the employer. So that means that the employer basically is planning that five employees will be dismissed by reason of redundancy in a 30-day period from a population of between 21 and 49 And then the thresholds increase by reference to the number of employees in the business. So 10 employees where there are 50 to 99 employees, 10% of the employees where there are 100 to 299 employees employed and 30% of employees where there are 300 or more employed and so on. Okay, so what does that mean in practical terms then for employers carrying out collective redundancies. We know, for example, that where a collective redundancy arises, an employer is obliged to consult with employee representatives for no less than 30 days. And we're going to come back to the concept of consultation in a moment and to the question of employee reps. But what else does an employer need to be sort of aware of, thinking of and and planning for as soon as they are aware that they may need to proceed to a collective redundancy exercise? Well, there are a number of obligations that employers need to be mindful of. First of all, it's important to consider the overall message and communications. It's very common for employers to arrange a town hall or an all hands meeting prior to kickoff of a collective redundancy so that employees are aware at the earliest opportunity of the process and the rationale. Then typically the exercise of formally placing all in-scope employees at risk takes place and the exercise of electing employee representatives, which we'll come back to in a moment. Following that, consultation will usually start. Once that kicks off, the employer must write to the Irish Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, setting out the total number of employees normally employed, the number or categories of employees to whom it is proposed to make redundant, the period over which it is proposed to implement the collective redundancies, and the reasons for the proposed collective redundancies. This should be done on the same day as consultation starts, as the first notice of redundancy cannot be issued until 30 days after the employer writes to the minister. The employer must also write to the employee representatives and provide information on the reasons for the proposed redundancies, the number and description of those at risk and the proposed selection criteria. Okay, perfect. And it's probably worth noting that very significant fines can be incurred if an employer does not adhere to these strict legal requirements. There can also be legal liability for the directors of the employer company. So in a collective consultation process, an employer who dismisses employees by issuing redundancy notices before 30 days expires from the date of that notification to the minister that you just mentioned, those employers can be liable to a fine not exceeding €250,000. There is also provision for a fine of €5,000 for an employer who fails to notify the minister at all. There is also a potential liability for a fine of up to €5,000 for an employer who fails to consult with and inform employees. There are also offences and fines in respect of a failure to keep records for no less than three years in relation to collective redundancy exercises. And then employees also have individual statutory employment claims and avenues of redress against their employer where there is a failure to consult. So just turning maybe to consultation, we know there's been plenty of case law which has 
clarified the meaning of consultation. So do you want to talk just a little bit, Kira, about the guidance that we have from the case law on what consultation is and what it means? Yes, absolutely. The case law, as you've said, provides clear guidance on the aim and the purpose of consultation. And it's important for employers to keep this in mind throughout the process. Firstly, it should be noted that the overall aim of the consultation is to negotiate with a view to reaching agreement on the redundancies, including avoiding the need for proposed collective redundancies. Where that is not possible, the aim of the consultation should be to reduce the number of redundancies as far as possible in the circumstances or to mitigate their consequences. This mitigation might include, for example, a discussion on redeployment or retraining. Finally, the dialogue during the consultation should include consultation on the basis on which it will be decided which particular employees will be made redundant. In other words, selection criteria, as well as the macro reasons behind the decision to place the employees at risk of redundancy. Okay, thanks. So it is very clear that the consultation process must be meaningful and it's not intended to be a symbolic or tick the box exercise in a collective situation. And certainly in practice, we know from advising employers on this that it it actually can be quite a challenge to manage a collective consultation process for 30 days, we're often asked. Is there any way to perhaps shorten that? And and very often that question comes from a place where the employer feels that it's an uncomfortable situation for the employee to be put through, if you like, a 30-day consultation process. And there may be some validity to that indeed, but I think it seems quite clear from the, from the legislation and the case law that it really needs to be a 30-day collective consultation period. Another piece that we see quite a lot in practice is sort of a question around timing. You know, when... When should that consultation begin? And really the the rule of thumb is that the consultation needs to begin in good time with a view to reaching agreement. So there are not a huge amount of decisions on the timing of consultation, but there are a couple of, um, well, there's one very recent decision and two other very authoritative decisions that are really helpful in this regard. So two decisions that I think are definitely worth taking a look at if you're interested in further reading in this area is the Tangi versus Dell Products, which is a 2013 case. It's an Irish case. And then Fujitsu Siemens OI 2009 decision. We'll have the, the links to those in the resources section to this podcast. And we also had a very interesting recent decision from the Workplace Relations Commission, which is Crow versus Debenhams Retail Ireland Limited 2023. And so these decisions go into all the detail around the timing and the quality and the nature of information that needs to be shared with employee representatives. So I think probably what we can we can probably summarize it as follows. From a statutory perspective, it's very clear that the employer must initiate the consultation at the earliest opportunity and at least 30 days before the first notice of dismissal is given. So that's fine. The case law tells us that an employer is under a duty to start the consultation process as soon as it becomes aware of the adoption of a strategic decision or a change in activities which compels it to contemplate or plan for collective redundancies. So to put it another way, if there are requirements that make it economically necessary for an Irish employer to effect collective redundancies or at least to propose them, then that means the employer needs to start the consultation process if it has not already done so. And just, I suppose, bringing that thread, pulling that thread through, Kira, where, as we frequently see in practice, it's maybe, you know, a US-based or a UK-based parent or controlling affiliate of the Irish company, which is perhaps affecting a global restructure, 
including in relation to Ireland and in effect that's being sort of driven and decided outside of Ireland. Who bears the responsibility then for the process? Well, as we discussed earlier, it's the employer who must undertake the consultation process and the employer who has the obligation to participate. The courts have clarified that this responsibility does not shift even if the employer is controlled by another undertaking. If the controlling undertaking imposes requirements on the employer that make it economically necessary for the employer to effect collective redundancies, the employer is required to start the consultation process and the employer cannot rely on that undertaking's failure to provide necessary information. Yeah, absolutely. The responsibility squarely falls on the Irish company and the directors of the Irish company. And if there's an information flow issue, certainly that's not a good defence, right? That's that's basically the position. Okay, so look, turning to employee representatives, tell us a little bit more about that. Who are they? What do they do? How are they elected? Well, as you say, in a collective redundancy process, employers do not consult directly with the employees like they do in an individual redundancy. Instead, they consult with the employee representatives with view to reaching an agreement on behalf of the employees. So representatives not only include a trade union, staff association or accepted body with which it has been the practice of the employer to conduct collective bargaining negotiations, but the legislation also provides that in the absence of such a trade union, staff association or accepted body, a person or a per- persons chosen under an arrangement put in place by the employer by such employees from amongst their numbers to represent them in negotiation by the employer. So the key point in this definition is that if a trade union or similar body is not in place, the representatives will be elected by the employees from among their number. The employee representatives should be elected by each team from which the at-risk employees are selected from. There is no guidance in the legislation on how many representatives there should be And in the absence of a collective agreement specifying the detail of how you elect employee representatives and how many there should be, typically you'd want to see about one employee representative to every 10 to 20 employees in our experience. The primary role for the employee representatives is to share the information that they are receiving from the employer at each of the consultation meetings with the affected employees and subsequently share with the company the information and the views which they are gathering from the affected employees who they represent. The employee representatives will attend group consultation meetings as scheduled and will be provided with certain information in writing for distribution to the employees they represent. The representatives should be afforded necessary time off for carrying out their representative functions in the undertaking or establishment in which they work. Additionally, employee representatives should not be dismissed or suffer any unfair treatment, including selection for redundancy because of their status or activities as employee representatives. That's great. Okay, thanks. So we've talked a good bit about collective redundancy. That's obviously the the more complex exercise, but possibly one of the more common exercises is actually a non-collective redundancy. So can you just explain to us what's the situation in a non-collective or individual redundancy situation? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there is more leniency in the process. The employer should and can consult directly and individually with the employee, usually and this is also relevant for the collective process, the employee is first placed at risk of redundancy and then a four-week consultation process should commence. There is direct dialogue and consultation with the employee and it should adhere to the principle of fairness. 
In comparison to the collective redundancy consultation requirements, the recommended four-week consultation can be shortened at the request of the employee. Okay, perfect. Another area where we get lots and lots of questions is selection criteria and selection pools. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. This tricky issue of fair selection arises where a group of employees carries out similar or interchangeable work. In those circumstances, employees who carry out similar or interchangeable work should be pooled for consideration for redundancy. All of those employees should be included in what is called the selection pool. The procedure for selecting employees for redundancy from that pool must be objectively justified, fair and transparent. Placing an employee in a pool for the wrong reasons will render dismissal unfair and leave employers open to claims for unfair dismissal under the Unfair Dismissals Act 1997 to 2015. This could arise where, for example, the selection of an employee for dismissal was due to a protected characteristic of the employee, such as maternity leave, age, or the employee engaging in trade union activities. The employee making a protected disclosure, for example, or the employee having exercised a right to statutory leave. An employer should be able to demonstrate that a particular employee has been compared to others who might have been made redundant and has been selected fairly on the basis of independent, objective and verifiable criteria. In assessing whether selection criteria meet this standard, much depends on the facts of each case and what is fair in one instance will not necessarily be fair in another. The employer must use criteria that will be seen to be impersonal, as we've mentioned, and objective when deciding upon what basis the employee's position will be made redundant. The selection criteria applied should, as far as possible, be objectively justified and applied in a fair manner. Examples of fair selection criteria could, for example, include length of service, skills, technical competency, qualifications, training, occupation, relevant experience, and future needs of the business. The employer may result to LIFO, the LIFO rule, last in, first out, which while rarely used in practice, remains a valid way of selecting employees for redundancy. Unfortunately for the employer, there's no hard and fast rules as to what constitutes the criteria to be adopted. If not dealt with correctly and transparently, this is where the challenges could potentially arise. Indeed, and we've seen some of this in the case law. It might be worth mentioning just two quick cases, actually, and both are from 2013. And in the first case, uh, it anonymized an employee versus an employer. A claimant was dismissed due to the application of LIFO, last in, first out, as the selection criteria. And the claimant um, filed his unfair dismissal claim and he alleged that no objective criteria or no fair selection criteria had been used. The adjudication officer in the WRC agreed with the claimant and awarded uh, the claimant €15,000 in compensation. And kind of interestingly, what the AO uh, concluded was that the respondent employer had relied too heavily on a LIFO policy and it it criticised the employer and indicated that really a more comprehensive consideration of the future roles in the organisation should have been conducted. And as a result, there would have been selection criteria used which would have been fairer and potentially would have changed the outcome. So I think that's kind of an interesting decision because sometimes we do think, uh, as you've said, LIFO is not terribly frequently used, but when it is, it is certainly objective, but um, it, it came in for some criticism there. So just to look at a second decision, also from 2013, a respondent employer implemented redundancies following a decline in 
its business. All of the at-risk employees were given, which is quite correct, a copy of the selection criteria and the applicable scoring matrix, and they all agreed it, which was helpful. However, one of the employees who was ultimately selected for redundancy objected to the scoring that was applied to the selection criteria because he believed he had extensive product knowledge that wasn't taken into account. And as a result, he scored the lowest. And the WRC was satisfied that the process of selecting the claimant for redundancy put him at a distinct disadvantage because his role was not similar to those of the others he was being scored against. The claimant apparently had a slightly more distant relationship to the sales director who carried out the scoring and the WRC agreed with the claimant that the selection criteria were unfair and he was awarded €58,000 as compensation. So what are the learning points from that? Well, for sure you have to consult on the selection criteria. The scoring has to be fair. We sometimes will suggest that you have two people to do the scoring. So one person who actually does the first pass and then somebody else checks it and that can try to get rid of some of this unfairness. Okay, we might just quickly, uh, before we, we finish up, Kira, just talk about what can happen when things go wrong. So would you take us through perhaps the avenues of redress in relation to unfair dismissal? Yes, absolutely. An interesting recent decision was the case of Orla Howe versus Cullum Kelly, Healy Crowley Ahern. It's a 2023 decision, which demonstrated the key considerations which employers should keep in mind when commencing a redundancy process, be it an individual redundancy consultation or indeed a collective consultation. In this case, the respondent employer terminated the complainant employee by reason of redundancy after the complainant informed the respondent of her pregnancy. In arriving at the decision, that the dismissal was in fact discriminatory, the WRC pointed out the following flaws in the employer's behaviour. So there was no alternatives to dismissal considered. An additional member of staff was hired around the same time as the complainant was dismissed and the financial difficulties cited as the reason for the redundancy had been known for quite some time before the complainant informed the respondent of her pregnancy. And it seemed that the pregnancy was the trigger for the actual redundancy discussion. After finding that the redundancy was not genuine, the WRC held that the dismissal was tainted with discrimination and the respondent employer was ordered to pay the complainant employee compensation of €30,000. The avenue for redress for claims in this area is through an aggrieved employee lodging a complaint with the WRC within six months of the dismissal complained of. In the, the case we've just discussed, the Orla Howe decision, as the complaint was one of discriminatory dismissal, The maximum compensation here was 104 weeks of the complainant's salary. Similarly, successful claims for unfair dismissal due to redundancies being procedurally or substantively unfair are subject to a maximum award of 104 weeks, taking into consideration the employee's ability to mitigate their financial loss by finding gainful employment soon after the dismissal occurs. That's great. Thanks, Kira. Okay, look, we'll close on that note. Plenty to think about and plenty to consider if a business is planning a restructure in Ireland. The laws and the case law make it very clear that employers really are expected to adhere to the highest standards of fairness and transparency and reasonableness when effecting redundancies and limited enough uh, scope for, for any shortcuts. So for now, thank you for listening to the Maples Group Irish Employment Law podcast. 
As I say, we'll be continuing our theme of uh, managing change and disruption in the workplace. And our second podcast next month, we'll be looking at a slightly different theme, which is managing absence. If you have any questions or queries on any of the points covered today or on any employment legal issues in Ireland in general, please get in touch with us. Thanks for listening and subscribing.